Hello, and welcome to the Den of Geek Book Club podcast, a place for us to geek out about our favorite speculative fiction books. My name is Katie Burt, and I am the book editor at Den of Geek. This month, the Den of Geek Book Club is reading Autonomous by Annalie Newitz, a story about robots, pirates, and identity in the year 2144. We sat down with Annalie during New York Comic Con in October to chat about her science fiction debut, artificial intelligence stories, and what she's a fan of right now. Okay, so at first I wanted to talk about where the idea for this book started. Was it like a character? Or was it a theme? Was it the world? Um, yeah, what, where was like the nugget? If, if you can remember, or if it was something that's gestated for a very long time. It did gestate for a long time, but I do remember the moment when it first came together, which was um, I was visiting a lab in Berkeley, at UC Berkeley, that has, uh, they, they recreate earthquakes there, and they use these massive machines to uh, recreate the forces of earthquakes by crushing things, basically. So it's huge machines for crushing. And they had this one um, device called an action wall, which was a bunch of actuators that could, big, huge actuators that could hold on to, um, like, a building or, like, a chunk of concrete and just crush it or, like, torque it or it in some way that, again, would repurpose earthquakes. So, you know, the scientists are showing this to me, and I kept thinking, like, it's a wall of actuators, like, and um, I kept wondering, because I kind of, at that moment, hadn't, it wasn't until that exact second that I had sort of put together in my head that an actuator is just a robot arm, Mm -hmm. um, because actuator sounds so badass, and I had never thought, oh, it's actually just an arm. (laughs) And what would it be like to have an arm like that, that could just, like brush something, you know, a piece of concrete. Um, and that was when I started thinking about Paladin, the robot character. And the very first image that came into my head was um, Paladin climbing sand dunes and getting sand caught in his actuators and feeling pain. And that was um, that was my entry point for the character. And so um, the story kind of built out from there, from that moment of pain and awareness of actuators. Yeah, and Paladin's awareness of, you know, him or herself's um, body and identity was definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, did you find that writing for one of the characters, because you also have Jack, who is, who is also fascinating but in very different ways, were one of those um, storylines, like, was that easier to write for you or more interesting or harder? Um, they were both hard in their own way. Um, Jack was a little bit easier to write because um, she's a human, and so a lot of her <laughs> senses and feelings are pretty familiar to me as a biological creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, um, you know, I used to be an, an academic radical, and so I put in a little bit of my feelings about that maybe somewhere here and there. <laughs> um, and so Jack was definitely, um, came easier. And I, I felt like um, Paladin took, a couple of pretty deep rewrites before I really got Paladin right. Whereas Jack, Jack wasn't right at first either, but like she definitely didn't take as much. Um, I didn't have to rethink her character completely, mm-hmm. um, but I did with Paladin. I actually completely rethought Paladin um, uh, at least once, more like one and a half times. <laughs> what were some of those changes that you made? Um, so when I first wrote. The first draft, I mean, first drafts are, for me, are terrible. I'm sure there's some people who write amazing first drafts. I have this feeling like Neil Stevenson writes perfect first drafts. Um, But I don't. And you want to hate them, but you're like, I also love your books. Yeah, but it's like, whatever, just keep writing. Um, (laughs) uh, Do what you got to do. 
So in my first draft, um, the characters were really unsympathetic, and Paladin, I hadn't really invented Paladin's whole internal monologue, like, that we get later, where Paladin is um, uh, thinking about her programs and thinking about uh, different ways of interacting with people, Mm -hmm. and so Paladin was a bit more of a cipher, and... um, and it was uh, not as satisfying. It was kind of... And I, I remember, like, I went on a vacation um, with some friends, and they were off, like, running around in the ocean, and I was sitting back at our, at our house, um, looking out at the ocean um, and thinking, all right, what would a robot do? Like, what, how would a robot feel? And I finally kind of um, figured it out. And mm-hmm. that was a great moment, because then I then I could really just finish writing her character and um, or his character or their character... Whatever Paladin ends up deciding is totally cool, um, and uh, and that was super awesome. I always knew that Paladin was going to switch genders, but I didn't know how Paladin was going to feel about that. So. Yeah, I did want to ask about that because I was also curious. I think the placement of it is really great, like, in the book. Did, was, did it ever come at a different part? Because it, it does feel like, like, is it halfway? Or? It's halfway. Yeah. And originally, um, like, way back in the midst of time, I actually <laughs> wanted to call the book Retcon, which is not a great title, and actually, some there's another book called Retcon. Yeah, it's just dumb. But anyway, so um, but the drug is still called Retcon, and um, so uh, or the the therapy drug, and um, so I wanted it to be a retcon. Like I wanted the reader to reach that point in the story and have to kind of reimagine the whole first part of the book and yeah. think like, oh wait, but was Paladin really a girl all along? What does that mean? And then to force the reader then to rethink that again and be like, well, maybe, no, maybe mm-hmm. Paladin is something completely different from either male or female, or maybe those terms are just completely different for robots, um, which they are. So, um, yeah, so that was always, I always wanted it to be like the middle of the book that Paladin would switch and that at around the same time, um, Jack and her gang um, would have started work on a drug that would help people uh, change their memories of work. So mm-hmm. um, gender and work get oh. revised. <laughs> There's so much I want to say in response to that. I'm like, which direction? <laughs> um, because it did, reading this book did remind me a lot of reading the Anne Leckie's um, Ancillary series and that, like, enjoyable, like, discomfort in some ways where, like, you brush up against, like, the, these cultural constructs of gender and... Yeah, so I really, I really love that part of it. Um, was that at all... I guess the Insulary series probably came out after you had started It came out after I had um, written the first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it definitely... I mean, when I, when I read Ancillary Justice, it was... I think it was in an arc, and mm-hmm. I did not know what to expect, and um, it just blew me away. And it was funny because... The gender stuff, I was like, well, yes, of course, that's excellent. Like, that was not as much what blew me away as the, as the representation of um, a hive consciousness, like mm-hmm. an AI consciousness. I was just like, holy shit, this is amazing. And also, just like um, the whole opening scene of the novel mm-hmm. um, where it's just this character who is, like, a badass James Bond kind of character, just blowing everybody away and, like, stealing a helicopter, and was was female. And so I was like, wow, I am totally invested in this world for, like, so many reasons. And um, and then it was only, like, later that I was like, oh, yeah, she's doing this weird thing with gender, too. But I was, was, like, interested in what does it mean to have been a hive mind and become singular, which to me is so intensely tragic. 
kind of tragedy that only a robot could experience, only an AI. And so um, I just, yeah. But, so they didn't directly, those novels didn't directly influence my novel, but um, they sure blew me away. And, you know, they're in the same... They're in the same vein as, um, as Autonomous, for sure. Yeah, and this is not just one conversation, or if it is, there's so many different things to say. So having, you know, all these different works that are coming out, or at least some different works that are, are science, science fiction that's, you know, directly addressing gender in this way feels, yeah. feels good. And also AI, like the movie mm. Her came out while I was working on this. Um, the Westworld series came out after I was actually totally done, um, and the book was just sort of being edited. Um, and I just, you know, neither of those deals with gender very well, but, um, and in fact, in some ways problematically deals with gender, but the way they deal with AI is just so freaking great. So yeah. it's really neat to see that. Yeah, there is a lot of, like, human equivalent AI happening right now in our storytelling. Were there parts of that exploration that you, you know, you're excited to add autonomous to because it didn't feel like that part of the conversation was happening and you were like, I can't wait for people to read this book to think about, you know, this in this way. Yeah, definitely. I think that the questions about um, ownership of AI are, are just now starting to be addressed. I feel like Westworld is doing a pretty good job at, at certain points in trying to deal with that. Um, what does it mean to have someone else own your mind? What does it mean to have people programming your memories? Um, uh, I think those are really interesting questions. And then the questions around slavery, uh, which is, of course, directly related to who owns you if you're a person who's a robot. Um, so I think those uh, are slowly being addressed now. I think that's a really new... Uh, it's not new for literary science fiction, but I feel like it's new for television and film science fiction. Um, it's hard to represent. You know, it's not like it's like TV and movies are dumb. It's just that it's harder to to invoke that visually. I think it's something that is um, easier in a book link. Uh, it's easier in a book because you can just... There's just shit you can do in books that you can't do as easily um, on screen. Um so that I really wanted to add, and um, the uh, <laughs> the other issue I wanted to think about that I feel like hasn't been dealt with a lot is um, how robots and AI will respond to being um, desired sexually by people, by humans, by human people. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I, and I, I feel like we have a lot of movies like Ex Machina, which, you know, is a huge touchstone now and lots of people um, are obsessed with it, rightly, um, kind of starts to, to, to deal with that. Like, we start to see, like, this is what you reap if you create something that's a sex bot that is also a person. Um, but that is also totally alien and AI. It's an AI that doesn't think like a person. Um, but the thing about Ex Machina is that it still fits into the, basically the Terminator narrative of like, oh, the machines will rise up and kill you if you enslave them. And I was like, you know, if, if AI really is based on data from humans and is programmed by humans, I don't think it's just going to rise up and kill humans. I think it's going to be more complicated. Some of them for sure will rise up and kill humans. Um, and As some humans do. Do to, other to humans. each other, yes, absolutely. But I think the other thing that's complicated is that humans do um, enslave each other all the time in different kinds of ways, literally and sometimes figuratively. Um, 
and there is no great uprising. There's only endless compromises and horror and sadness. Um, so I wanted to capture that too, like the subtleties of, of what that relationship would be like. Yeah. It does feel like a hope, a hopeful book in a lot of ways, even though it is very, you know, violent and dark at times. Um, yeah, I was, I was curious about, um, the ending because I wasn't sure when I was reading it, you know, where these characters would end and if they'd get a happy ending, but I kind of consider, consider it a happy ending. Um, you know, asterisk, um, was that always where you wanted them to end? Or did you want to kind of have some hope for these characters? I definitely wanted to have hope for the characters. Um, some more than others. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Jack is going to be, Jack was already damaged and now she's even more damaged. She's Mm going to keep trying to do the right thing. And I think she's going to have another adventure. Um, but, uh, I did, I, I like books and movies and stories where um, the characters are not, um, where the characters find some hope, but are also slightly damaged by what's happened to them. Like they, mm. they don't just kind of everything doesn't just come up roses at the end. Yeah. Like trauma still, is a thing. Yeah, they have baggage, yeah. right? And um, and I wanted, um, you know, Paladin to have a boyfriend because um, that's always fun. Um, but I also think that like if you if you really think logically about what's happened at the end, like, you know, like, Paladin and Elias are not going to be together long-term, right? It's like a first relationship, you know? And that's great, right? Like, yeah. They'll probably have a lot of fun together, yeah. and then, you know, Paladin's going to realize, like, Elias has a lot of hang-ups that, you know, he just can't deal with at all. And so, um, so it's kind of a, um, uh, it's kind of like, so... <laughs> I think I'm thinking about Ian Forster's novel Morris, uh-huh. um, which I know sounds like kind of outside of the realm of science fiction. Um, but this was a novel that Ian Forster wrote about um, two men falling in love um, in the Edwardian period in England. And it has this happy ending. Where, and one, is, one of them is a kind of upper class and one is working class. And at the end, they're like kind of in love and it's all happy. But like Ian Forster apparently told all his friends when he passed this novel around, which didn't get published until the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, And he was like, of course, they're never going to wind up together. Like, you know, (laughs) it seems happy now, but like they never have long term prospects. And so I kind of think of of, um, Elias um, and and Paladin like that. You know, it's their first relationship. They're getting it on. They're having some forbidden love. But they're going to go on a space adventure. Going to Mars. But, um, you know, things are Um, I was curious about, um, there's a part near the end of the book where you expand um, the perspective a little bit, and we get these points of view from other characters. Um, yeah, I, w- I was wondering why, and I liked that, and I was wondering why you did that, and if there, you ever felt like adding those in earlier or more, having more um, point of view characters. Because there's so many, the supporting characters in this are so well realized and developed. And I had very strong feelings about them as well as these Me too. two. Yeah, <laughs> um, I have a lot of feelings about Three Z. Um, I really like Med, um, mm-hmm. the robot um, who is never enslaved. Um, I actually have a short story that I'm planning that's about Med and Three Z. Like later, like mm-hmm. what happens when they're just like roommates and hanging out, and like Three Z <laughs> is going to college and stuff, um, and they're both just trying to figure out how to be grown-ups, basically. Um, so I, I didn't ever think about making them come in earlier. I mean, Threesad comes in right away, yep. um, and he's really important. Um, and, uh, 
you know, toward the end, I wanted, once we'd gotten to know Med and Reset a little bit more, I did want to give them a chance to kind of come in and offer their perspectives a little bit more. And, um, and they're like the next generation, you know, they're, that's what I love about the fact that Med winds up basically having Chris's job because she's picking up the, you know, the banner, um, and she's going to keep, uh, trying to do the right thing, um, with, uh, with medicine and, um, you know, with the treatment of robots too, because she's actually probably one of the only robots in that kind of a position. Um, we don't know that much about where robots wind up when they're autonomous, but it's, it's clear that a 20 year old robot who's been autonomous for 20 years is incredibly unusual. And that, you know, some, someone who, uh, who's in that position is very rare. Is very rarely a robot. So she's she's like being awesome. Yeah, she um, is awesome. She's a badass. Yeah, and she deals with a lot of microaggression. Yeah, <laughs> everybody's yeah. always like, "Are you sure you really think that, or did someone <laughs> just program you to think that?" Um, I feel like that's like almost what women have to deal with in the workplace sometimes. Mm. Like women and people of color, and it's like when anyone who isn't like the dominant group in their workplace, like often the comments that you get boiled down to, did someone else tell you to do that? It's like, nope, I actually thought it myself. <laughs> I did not get programmed. I do that but, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I just think it off all on my own. Um, so yeah, uh, so that definitely, it was, um, you know, the world could go on forever, you know, mm-hmm. but I had to stop it somewhere. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Well, you never know. Could, could come back in some other form. Yes. Um... I did want to ask you about, is it pronounced acuity or is that? Acuity is how I, per, yeah. I, that's how I pronounce it in my head. You're like, oh no, I have to say these words that I've only ever read it's aloud. It's true. <laughs> um, because I could relate to that whole issue of the, you know, being addicted to work, um, even though it's, I don't know, maybe not a chemical thing um, for those of us who exist in this like very work-driven society. But um, yeah, I I feel like you could have gone in a lot of different directions with what was like the problem drug in the story. Um, and you chose this one and I was curious about that. Well, I mean, this is a novel that's about labor and work and how does work feel? And one of the things that we, I I feel like this is an under discussed topic in our world um, because we, we all suffer because of work. Um, we all get high on work. You know, if, like, work is going really well, um, you know, that kind of a high is pretty intense. You know, like, whoa, I totally scored this thing. Or, like, people like my story or whatever. Um, You could figure out another way to make yourself feel good that may be more long-lasting. I I was going to say productive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But you already know that the cycle of, like, work, reward, you know how that feels. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's also something that's recognized as, like, good by, like, this, this power structure around Yeah, you. it's recognized as good, it's rewarded, it's mm-hmm. viewed as like a kind of, um, you know, as if you're being, it's as if you're one of the chosen, you know, like you're, you're not a sinner if you're working, mm-hmm. right? And if you're getting high on work, um, it's not an addiction, it's, it's just being productive and that's yeah. just like being a good person and yeah. like contributing to society, um, even if it's, um, you know, destroying your life, or even if the work you're doing is meaningless, or, yeah. or, or the work you're doing is something that you will never benefit from. Only, 
importantly, only the people who own the products of your labor will benefit from it. Um, and they're going to do terrible things with it, right? Like Zaxi, the company that owns Zacuity and a bunch of other drugs, um, is not doing good things with those products in the world. And so um, that's, that's one of the horrors of work. Um, and so I wanted to show in the book, I wanted to show the range of horrors associated with work. Everything from slavery, which is, of course, um, you know, in a way you could say it's barely even labor. I mean, because it really is just slavery is its own thing. Um, Maybe it's on the extreme end of of work um, because you are doing work. Um, And then all the way over to, you know, people like Jack who have an opportunity to be basically middle class, you know, uh, productive workers um, and choose not to be. Um, and then, of course, we meet uh, a few um, corporate workers uh, who have chosen to have that life and are taking security in order to feel like uh, it's all worth it. Um, so I just kind of wanted to poke at the idea that um, that, uh, that doing work is really healthy and that, you know, and to talk mm-hmm. about how being addicted to a process like work um, is part of what contributes to um, a really toxic environment in our society where we start to think that slavery is okay, you yeah. know, because, well, if work is good, then how can it be bad to be a slave? <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, let's think that through again, okay? Um, and uh, and so, so yeah, that was kind of um, why I wanted to focus on that drug. And, um, uh, but I did think about, you know, initially I was like, well, maybe longevity drugs, because I also think longevity is a really toxic idea. But, um, but so many people I know take uh, productivity drugs like mm-hmm. Ritalin and Provigil and Adderall, and, um, which I know are also maybe they're to get you high. But people I know the people I know take them exclusively to do work, mm-hmm. um, and you know it just seems like this is you know we're starting to confuse addiction and labor, and um, and that's not a great thing for the future. Yeah, it was a very cathartic part of the book for me, I think. And I actually, it's interesting what you said, what it feels like, because one of the lines that was my favorite that I wrote down was from Three Zed, where he says, but I guess it's good that they finally know what work feels like. I love yeah. that part. Yeah, because sometimes, especially if you're doing um, mental labor, mm-hmm. like like the kind of work that pretty much all the characters we meet are doing, um, other than Paladin, who's doing a lot of physical labor, uh, you know, it feels like you're losing your mind sometimes because you're doing a bunch of stuff with your mind that isn't under your control. Like, someone comes to you and says, like, all right, think these thoughts for me, produce a thing and give it to me at the end. And it's like your brain is a little factory that's producing the stuff, but, like, it's also in your head. Yeah. And so it's, it becomes this kind of drugged-up experience, and um, it is super... It feels weird and bad sometimes. Sometimes it feels great, you know, but uh, sometimes it feels like somebody has turned your brain into like their own private toilet or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then they just make like you swim factory. around in it. Yeah. yeah. Toilet factory. Toilet factory. <laughs> your next book. And not the good kind of toilet factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just mentioned 3Z, but I loved you know, the, the detail that he basically has, like, a live journal account. Um, and I was curious, as someone who, you know, you, you co-founded io9, and you spend a lot of time on the internet, and you've probably seen lots of different phases of the internet, why you chose to have meme land as, the, you know, the representation of the internet in this future. And, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of old school. Um, 
Yeah. And how you, did you just kind of want to escape from like the reality of the internet in some ways and go back to, to a simpler time or, um, so Memeland, so we see a lot of different parts of the net, which again is also a very nineties term that I used. Um, and so we see like how media works on the net and we see uh, people, uh, saving their memories onto the net, but yeah, Memeland is what we get when we go to social media. Um, and there are, um, uh, apparently, Memeland is the most one of the most popular social media sites, and I think the reason I picked it was because um, LiveJournal to me embodied like all of the worst and best parts of social media. Like it was great, I think, because it did allow people to it in in, a, in the same way that Medium allows people to publish long form um, essays that can then book, go viral. Uh, it did that, like so. People would publish these amazing articles on on LiveJournal, and I think they still do to a certain extent. Although I do think a lot of it's migrated to Medium, um, but it was so toxic, like just the worst parts of Twitter smushed together with like the worst parts of like Facebook and um, and 4chan, and just like all mushed together in the comments. And I feel, I, I knew people whose lives were ruined by things that happened on LiveJournal and like you know there's like I love that you can find online like not like book link chronicles of like drama meltdowns Mm -hmm. on LiveJournal like Mm -hmm. you know explained down to like the characters involved and like all the sock puppets and like you know like taxonomies of sock puppets (laughs) um and I mean, and again, the same thing happens on Twitter, but it's a little bit less intimate, um, and it's it's faster and it, it's more automated. Um, and I, so there's that. Um, but then also, so I wanted to have the kind of like retro fun of like bringing up sort of live journal feelings. But I also think that um, the journal format is going is a, is an enduring one. And so um, you know, we we have journals from the 16th century. Um, and we read those still, you know, by people like um, Samuel Pepys, his journal, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of different thinkers have left behind journal, like, uh, actual literal journals or journal-like writing, um, and I think that as we look into the future, that's going to be something that will continue to endure online, whatever it, whatever form it takes, so whether it's meme land or medium um, or, you know, I don't know, like... Corrosion was like a really popular one like 15 years ago. I still miss. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's okay. Um, it's fine. It had its moment. It was kind of like, like I'm fine. It doesn't. Yeah, it's fine. It's okay. Um, it was kind of like it was a bit Reddit like, but also people would, or maybe it was a bit like, um, yeah, it was it was it was like a a good version of Reddit um, where like you didn't have um, like blobs of yuck everywhere. Um, <laughs> gotta step around that. Yeah. Watch out for that puddle. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was that was part of what I was thinking, is just that the journal, we, we will continue to see online journaling for a long, long, long time, I think. I mean, yeah, I hope so too. But without the toxic thing. Yeah, that one. <laughs> they haven't fixed that yet, apparently, so. Yeah, it, I guess... My, my question, too, was rooted in a kind of, like, nostalgia that maybe simplified how the internet used to be as well. No, LiveJournal was seriously yeah. so toxic. Yeah. It, was not, it was not a solution to anything. In fact, I feel like Twitter... 
kind of took the very worst lessons from LiveJournal mm. and then, like, weaponized them and streamlined mm. them and, like, basically was like, how can we take the comments, which are the part where people melt down and, like, turn them into an entire platform? Yeah. Uh, and so, not that I don't like comments, I think they can be great, but um, uh, they can also be a source of serious dysfunction. So, um, yeah, I don't think there was ever a time on the internet where... Everyone know, was just, like... Everyone was nice. Skipping around. I mean, I was on BBSs in the 80s, and, like, it was... People were ha- I mean, when I entered the BBS scene in the 80s, people were telling me about drama that had happened a year before I arrived. They're like, oh, no, you need to understand. This guy, There's context. There's context. And so it was like, I've never known an internet that was without its toxic yeah. funnels. How did you decide to set the, or, yeah, set the book in 2140s? Because this is the second book I've read recently set in that decade. Ooh, what was the other one? Um, Tal Klein's The Punch Escrow. Oh, yeah. So now I'm like, what do you two know? Hmm. Are you I really want to read that. I've been, like, that's been on my to-read list for, yeah. like, ages. So now this makes me, okay, so when we're done, okay, I'm going to go read that um, and find out. Um I, I, the simple reason was um, I wanted a future that felt near enough that um, I could plausibly imagine things like journaling online still existing um, and things like um, cars and pharmaceutical companies. Like, it's still close enough to now that a lot of our institutions will still be there. Um, And I, I started out with my world building uh, by looking back about 125 years and thinking about, okay... This is five generations ago, so what do I know about my great-grandmother? What do I know about um, what people were doing in the late 19th century? Like, how similar and different is that from today? Um, And there's a ton of similarities, and there's still technologies and institutions that are around that were around then. Like, people were reading the New York Times, and uh, people were camping in Yosemite, and taking photographs, and... um, so some of the technologies and, um, you know, institutions, like I said, that we had then are still around. So I think I really just wanted it to be um, far, enough, far enough in the future to be freaking weird, mm-hmm. but close enough to be recognizable. Awesome. Um, well, that was, I interviewed him, Tal Klein as well, and that was kind of his answer. So Yeah, I think it's like, I think it's that sweet spot where it's, you know, there's near future, which is always like the kind of max headroom five minutes of the future, which is really actually probably more like 125 minutes of the future. Uh, I love max headroom. Um, so good. But um, uh, so there's, I think near future is really hard. I think only William Gibson can really do near future and everybody else should just like forget it. Um, and then, um, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There's plenty of other lovely people, but I feel like he kind of mastered that and then if you really want to do near future, you have to kind of go at least a century out. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Emily's rules pull out of her ass. <laughs> part 12. <laughs> Actually, more like part like 1 million and 12. But yeah. <laughs> um, so your book has been out in the world now for a few weeks. Um, so, you know, not a huge amount of time to get no. to get reaction. But I'm curious if there have been any, you know, reactions or interpretations that you're like, huh. That is not what I thought I was writing, but, you know, anyone, obviously, once the book is out there, 
the author is dead, perhaps. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's true. Yeah. And um, I definitely am not one of those writers who feels like there's a correct way mm-hmm. to read the book, and especially because I really tried hard to make a lot of parts of the book open-ended so that people could, um, you know, make their own decisions about what was happening. Because I think a lot of these characters are super conflicted, and they might the truth of who they are and what they're doing might be incredibly complex and might be one thing one day and one thing another day. Um, So one of the reactions that um, several people have had to the book, which made me super happy and surprised, was um, people asking me about um, what pronoun to use for paladin to, like, be respectful. And a lot of people said, should I use they and them? And I'm like, sure. You know, paladin doesn't care. But, like, I think probably paladin once Paladin becomes a little bit more aware of robot culture and grows up a little bit, will probably be non-binary in some form. And um, so I was, I just was surprised that people, um, I guess that people had as many feelings about Paladin as I did. And were like, no, but what would Paladin want? And I'm like, Oh, nobody's asking that in the novel except for like you know but I was so happy yeah, that they so were many people like, are projecting things onto Paladin yeah well. and yeah. like but also like worried about like what what should we do with Paladin's pronoun and I'm like yeah um, so I like that um, and then I think um, so far nobody has come up with like a reading of the novel or a take on the novel where I was like what <laughs> why did you think that um, but um, oh, it, other than actually this isn't true Somebody on Twitter the other day said, like, they really want Zacuity. And I was like, okay. And she even said, like, that's probably not what you're what you're aiming for. And I was like, but I could see it. And she's I like, where can I buy this new dress? I know. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's called ProVigil. <laughs> you, you can buy it. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I think those were the two most surprising reactions. And then mm-hmm. just, like, people have really, um, you know, people, uh, I love the fact that people think that I'm much smarter and more devious than I really am. And they'll say, like, oh, I see that you put in this theme here to match this theme over there. And I'm like, yes, yes, I did. Totally. I was all fully in control of every <laughs> sentence, every moment. Um, but uh, so that's been nice that people are finding stuff in it that I yeah. didn't even know was there. And, yeah. and that's as it should be. Um, the book is, is yours now. So, um I'm just uh, over here writing another book now. So. <laughs> Can you um, talk at all about your uh, your new book? Or are you still? Yeah. Yeah. No. So I'm um, I'm working on another book for tour, um, which I'm very excited about, and um, it uh, my editor would love to have it very soon. Um, but I am in the middle of kind of um, I'm just sort of finishing up the scribbling notes and idea phase, and I'm right about to just like spurt it out in like white hot excitement um and um it's a it's a standalone novel about time travel and um part of it is about trying to alter the timeline but part of it is also about what it feels like to go back in time and talk to your teenage self about how screwed up your high school friends are so it's gonna have a lot of feels (laughs) that sounds so good i love time travel (laughs) it's also gonna be pretty violent so um not leaving that part of my feeling behind either. I actually, there's so many things I still want to ask you. I'm running out of time. (laughs) But um, Paladin is, I think, a character that a lot of people have and will fall in love with and is kind of like the standout in that way, I think. Um, But she is also very violent at points. Um, 
but the way that violence is, you know, depicted is, is pretty like non-judgmental or like there's no sort of um, judgment like imposed upon it. Like you really give space for the, the reader to decide how they feel about this. Um, yeah. So I was, I was just curious how, how you thought about writing like the violence um, in this book, especially the violence that, you know, one of the main characters was enacting on other people that we knew and cared about. Yeah. No, there's a lot of like, skull crushing and like beating um, and killing um, and I mean it's a violent world Paladin is a military bot and Elias is um, you know lifetime military security guy um, and uh, both of them are trying to do what they think is right I mean Paladin's been programmed so uh, he or she doesn't have a ton of control over what she thinks is right um and uh, Elias has grown up under really uh, difficult circumstances and, and in a sense also has been kind of programmed by those circumstances. Um, I think, like, I think Jack is the character where we really see the repercussions of violence. She's really haunted by it. She, um, I think, hates herself for what she's done um, and has a death wish throughout much of the novel because she feels like she's really um, just screwed up horribly um and uh in terms of how I felt about the violence um I'm I'm a huge fan of of violent action movies um I love horror films um I'm a huge you know David Cronenberg fan from like way back um (laughs) and so I love body horror but I also love gunfights um I don't know how good I am at writing gunfights, but I tried. Um, I'm much better at the head-crushing, um, brain-squeezing stuff. Um, and I just, I see that as an important part of this world to just show people that, you know, this isn't just, you know, happy-dappy, like, oh, we, we traipse along, we catch a Pokemon and a ball. Um, actually, we do have to, we, there is murder going on, um, and the stakes are high. Um, so uh, I just think it's, I think any realistic representation of the world has to include violence. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and a, you know, I hope that it's clear that this is a condemnation of violence. This is yeah. not, like, about how violence is awesome. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, innocent people are killed, and that's mm-hmm. horrible. I think maybe my reaction, I'm, there's so much violence out there that feels super superfluous so to have or like glorified or you know in that direction so to have some that's like kind of understated in some ways while you still understand the weight of it and what's going on felt really really different and um yeah some people have said to me that they felt it was too violent Mm -hmm. and that they were very upset by the violence and part of me feels bad about that because i don't want people to feel like i am forcing them to look at something they don't want to look at um but I think it's in a story like this. It's just it's really important to remind people that like it's not it's not just about hacking. It's about you know, people's lives at stake. So the stakes are high. I know you have to leave soon, so I was just going to ask you. I like to to know what people are fans of you know right now. If you have any time for that, whether it's you know <laughs> movies, books, TV shows. Okay. Um, so, okay, I'm just going to tell you what I'm a fan of, like, literally right this second, <laughs> which is um, I just 
spent the weekend watching all of season one of Riverdale. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I just freaking love that show. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm really excited about season two, which is coming up really soon. I so think... is New York City. I don't know if you've seen all the billboards. Yes. And... <laughs> no, I saw outside of New York Comic Con, I saw the giant Riverdale billboard and I was like, it's my friend from Riverdale. <laughs> um, I'm like 100% in it for Jughead. Like, yeah. All I care about is Jughead. And like I'm in like the final episode where everybody was having sex, I'm like, okay, I don't give a shit about anything. Jughead, take off your shirt right now. Okay. And I was rewarded for my, <laughs> for my your patience. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I I think the thing I like about Riverdale is that it has that great combination of very light tone with um, super dark real issues, you know, that are played ironically, but also um, these are our family issues that are part of a lot of people's lives. Yeah. I love the representation of media in it. I think it's the, the two generations of journalists and how they uh, interact and. Um, uh, and uh, the writing is great. Like, a lot of the lines are just really snappy and funny. Um, the third episode deals with why slut shaming is bad. And it's like, okay, obviously this show is for me. Um, <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. And um, I am also uh, a big fan of, let's see, I feel like I just read a book that I was just like, holy shit. Um, uh, oh, I just read. Um, Maggie Shen King's novel, An Excess Male, uh, which I keep telling people about because it's so amazing. Um, It's a a near-future novel um, set in China, and um, it's about what happens when um, the one-child policy results in uh, more men, vastly more men than women, and so women are allowed to marry up to three men, and it's about a relationship between a woman and three men um, and meanwhile, the government has them under surveillance to make sure that they're having proper intercourse and, like, she's going to have babies with each of the men. And so it's this weird thing where it's a more open kind of relationship, but it's also heavily regulated by the government. So it's a nice, crunchy kind of, um, you get one thing, you lose one thing. Um, and also, the characters are really interesting and flawed. And um, so I highly recommend that if you like. Uh, I um, it's a super awesome. People are calling it a gender dystopia, but it's much more a surveillance dystopia. Um, and but it is very much about gender and specifically about masculinity and how men cope with this system um, where they are forced into these marriages that they may not want to have, and they're forced into them in, for all different kinds of reasons. So it's very complicated. It's not just like oh, well, we all want to have sex with one woman. It's like actually far more complicated and it also deals with people on the spectrum and where they fit into sexuality and so it's just super cool uh highly recommended so double dose uh you know an excess male followed by riverdale yeah that seems like a good combination (laughs) well thank you so much for talking with me today and and everyone should go read autonomous and watch riverdale and watch riverdale Thank you for listening to the Den of Geek Book Club podcast. Autonomous is now available to purchase in book, ebook, and audiobook forms. You can join the Den of Geek Book Club conversation over at Goodreads via the Den of Geek Book Club group. Next, we will be reading New Middle Eastern Fantasy, The City of Brass by S.A. Shackleborty. Happy reading! Happy reading!